Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name to each of you this morning. It's good to have a nice-sized crowd here this morning. I invite you all to turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5 again, continuing to look at the Sermon on the Mount. be looking this morning at verses 17 through 20. So far, we've looked at the Beatitudes, which give us a definition of what things are considered to be a blessing to those who are in the kingdom. We've also looked at the Christian's witness in the world, the effect we have on the world. And now we start to move into more of where Jesus explains the purpose of his teaching and what our individual responsibilities are to him. And I started feeling like as I was studying that it might take a couple of years to get through the Sermon on the Mount, but I do think some of it's going to move a little quicker than the last couple of messages. I'd like to read at this point uh, ch- uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass Pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the, these least commandments and shall teach men to so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. As I said, Jesus here was starting to talk about his mission on earth, his teaching. And he says at the beginning of these verses, don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill So that was what Jesus' purpose was. And in looking at that, I'd like you to consider a little bit, what are the law and the prophets? The law that Jesus was speaking of was the law of Moses, the law that God had given through Moses. And the prophets would have been the writings of the other prophets of old, what we have recorded in the Old Testament. It was what comprised the Jewish uh, scriptures, what they ordered their lives by. And I believe that it was important for Jesus to make this point because he's saying that all that you've been taught all that you have 
all that the Jewish people have built upon for all these years, I haven't come to destroy that. I've come to bring fulfillment. I've come to take it to the next level, we could say. I think it was important for Jesus' listeners there and for us as well to understand that he wasn't really bringing something new, but he was building upon what had already been given. Whether it was what had been given through Moses or the warnings and admonitions that had been given through the other prophets. All of that served the same ultimate purpose. And that purpose is something that we should always keep within our minds. And remember to have it as a focus of our Christian life. The purpose of God in giving the law, giving the pro- uh, what, what the prophets shared... His purpose was to to create a group, a set-apart group of people who lived and represented God's kingdom here on earth. Ever since the fall of man into sin there in the Garden of Eden, the world has been under Satan's rule. And only a small remnant of people have followed and lived according to God's ways. Think of the days that Noah lived in. We're told in Genesis that Noah and his family alone were righteous on the earth. Everybody else was living according to Satan's the rule of Satan's kingdom. But Noah chose to do things God's way. And that's been God's purpose ever since the fall is to call out a group of people who are willing to submit to his way, to turn their backs on Satan's kingdom, and to live according to God's plan for mankind. Remember that everything that God created, he said, and it was very good. God created a perfect and good creation. But Satan took that creation and corrupted every aspect of it. And by following God's law, what he has given in his scriptures even though we so often do it imperfectly we are demonstrating to the world around us what God is like what his holiness demands and that his ways are good and that they're the the best way for mankind to live So here, in these verses, we have Christ telling the people that what God had given earlier 
through Moses and through the prophets was not being destroyed or done away with through his teaching, but it was being fulfilled. It was being brought to completion. Jesus himself was the actual fulfillment of many of the prophecies from the Old Testament. But more than that, he wasn't just simply doing away with with laws that were given, but he was giving commands that superseded what had earlier been taught. And as, Lord willing, as we continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see how that often the law that was given dealt with the act. But what Jesus was giving dealt with the heart. It dealt with the root issue. The law brought about a righteousness that was through obedience to the law. When people obeyed the law, they were viewed as righteous in God's eyes. But it was through obedience to the law. Jesus' purpose and what he was teaching was to bring about a righteousness that was because of a changed heart. A heart that had experienced forgiveness through him. And then in turn was willing to die to self and to serve him and to follow these principles. A verse that may help us understand the difference between the law and what Christ was bringing is Romans 6.14. It says this, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So, we live in the age of grace. But the difference is that the law demanded righteousness by obedience. But the law gave no power other than the threat of punishment. The law gave no power to obey. Christ's commands are greater. Christ took things to the next level. He didn't just address the act, he addressed the heart. But along with that, there is grace. Christ isn't just giving the law, he's giving the grace, the power to obey. The power to have the changed heart. When we avail ourselves of the grace of God that is available, then we can have the power to obey the command as well as to obey out of love, out of submission, out of a willing submission to do what God wants us to do. So we could say that Jesus' teaching is simply taking 
the earlier teaching of the law and the prophets to the next level, as I've already said. The purpose is the same. It's to create a called out and holy people. But the demands are higher. The demand is on the heart, not on the action. But we also have in play the power of the grace of God for us to obey. In verse 18, we see that Jesus is saying that the law is important and the law will stand forever. We don't live under the Old Testament law. But yet Christ says here that till heaven and earth pass away, not even the most insignificant part of the law is going to pass away. How is that? To help understand, I'd like to consider an example. The Old Testament law required sacrifice. They had to offer sacrifices for sin. They had to offer sacrifices to show their love and appreciation for God. They had thank offerings, fellowship offerings. The Old Testament law was a law of sacrifice. Today, under the New Covenant, we don't have those sacrifices. So does that mean that that part of the law has gone away? What would you say if I'd tell you that the requirement for sacrifices is still in effect today? It is. Jesus fulfilled that requirement. Jesus was the supreme sacrifice once for all, once for the sins of mankind. So there's no need to continue to offer those Old Testament sacrifices again and again. The sacrifice has been made once for all. And to everyone who accepts it, that sacrifice is still effective to take away sins. But the requirement for sacrifice today is greater than just accepting Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Turn to Romans chapter 12. These are familiar verses and a lot of us could probably quote them. Romans 12, first two verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
here we see this, the requirement for sacrifice is still in effect today. We're required to sacrifice our lives to the Lord. Not our physical life, but, but our will. We're to wholeheartedly give ourselves over to Him and His ways. And that sacrifice is shown by our nonconformity to the world. Our nonconformity to the world that is under the control of Satan's kingdom. As well as by the transformation of our mind. We don't think like the world thinks. Our, our minds are changed through the power and grace of the Lord Jesus. Again, God's grace is available so that we have the power to make that sacrifice to Him. So I make that, use that example to point out that ultimately, God's law will always be in effect. The Old Testament law required sacrifice. The New Testament law does as well. It's a different sacrifice. God doesn't change. And so his requirements, what, what he requires of us, don't change. And so we can see that in the beginning, in the Old Testament law, the things that God was was setting forth are similar. The, the requirements are very similar requirements to what we have today. It's just on a different level. Moving on, verse 19, Jesus goes on to say that whoever breaks even the least of the commandments and teaches others to break them will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches others to obey will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Some have said that to be called least in the kingdom of heaven means that the person will be will not be excluded from the kingdom, but will be a person of little importance. A small person, so to speak. But I'm not sure that that interpretation is correct. Because we're told elsewhere the punishment for adding to or taking away from the word of God. Revelations 22, 18 and 19 says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So we can see that God doesn't look with approval on people who add to or take away from what he has set forth in his word. I, for one, 
don't want to take the risk of minimizing what God's word says and being the one that's called least in the kingdom of heaven. Also notice here the connection between breaking the commandments and teaching others to break them as well as obeying the commandments and teaching others to obey. Normally, a person has to break a commandment before they're going to teach others to break that commandment. They disobey, and then they try to take others with them. You know, if we can gather a crowd around ourselves, it makes our pathway seem right. Numbers validate. It's called jumping on the bandwagon. And so you have somebody that starts pushing the limits. And you can bet your boots they're going to try to take their friends along with them. So we need to be vigilant and avoid those errors. Jesus warned against false prophets and the need to be vigilant so we aren't led astray by their error. And to do that, we need to be sure that we know the Scripture. We need to know what Jesus taught. We need to know what the Scripture requires. Then we know what is right and what is wrong. Knowing the Scripture and being familiar with it is the surest way of guarding against being led astray. It's also imperative that we personally know the scriptures and and put them into practice so that we can teach and we can lead others in the right way. It's only when we're putting into practice the teachings of the scripture that we are equipped to teach and to lead others and then be called great in God's kingdom. The danger of a false teacher is that he not only has the opportunity to poison himself and his generation, but false teaching can lead many generations astray. It doesn't have to. People can still come back to the Lord, but it has a way The error of a person's ways can lead many to destruction, generations. But in the same way, as we hold fast and teach a correct practice of the commandments, we can have a positive effect not only on our generation, but on generations to come. And again, the reward is to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Great in God's kingdom. I'd like to think about what that means, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven here is in contrast to the kingdom of this world. It's God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. 
One kingdom is temporary. One king, the other kingdom is eternal. And notice that our choice of whether we're going to obey Jesus' commands, what the scripture teaches, our choice of obedience determines which kingdom we're in. We're either obeying and promoting God's kingdom, or we're disobeying and we're promoting Satan's kingdom. So we have a choice whether we're going to be a part of an earthly, temporary kingdom or an eternal, heavenly kingdom. And you know, we face many temptations to live for that earthly, temporary kingdom because that earthly, temporary kingdom, it's what we see, it's what we know. It's what we can touch and feel and handle. It's what our five senses can, can participate in. But all of those things will pass away. And the kingdom of heaven will continue forever. It says elsewhere in scriptures that we walk by faith not by sight. So we need to have faith that Jesus' teachings are true and that to live by them ensures us a place in that kingdom, though unseen in many ways, yet is very real and is eternal and will last forever while Satan's kingdom will be destroyed. Moving on to the next verse, verse 20. Jesus gives a requirement for entering into that kingdom, a requirement more than obedience. This requirement is that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. These two groups were the most religious people of Jesus' day. They were in charge of the Jewish people, so to speak. They held the scriptures. They interpreted the scriptures. They said how it had to be done. And they supposedly did it all right. So what did he mean? by saying that our righteousness has to surpass theirs to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What was wrong with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? It's easy to say that, well, they were just living according to a bunch of man-made rules. They had added a lot on to what God said. Uh, Their hearts weren't in the right place. But is that the real reason that there was something wrong with their righteousness? As I looked at that and considered it, I came back to what I said earlier, that the intent of the law, 
that the scribes and Pharisees were trying to enforce. The intent of that law was to create a called out people, a nation of people that lived according to God's plan for mankind. A nation that was a demonstration to the people around them of God's intent for mankind. A demonstration of what God's holiness was like. That was the purpose of the law. But we see the scribes and the Pharisees focusing on the external. As I said earlier, the law applied for the most part to the act, to the physical actions of people. It restrained the action, but it didn't address the heart. And I think that's why the scribes and Pharisees, in their attempt at righteousness, were missing the mark. They were conscientious in about applying every point of the law and creating little loopholes so that they could do certain things without technically breaking the law. Their righteousness was creating a righteousness of acts, but not a righteousness of the heart. God isn't interested in an outward form without an inward change. Jesus said later of the scribes and Pharisees, and Paul read some of these verses, one of these verses at least in our Sunday school class, Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make the outside of the cup and the plat, you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. The blind Pharisee clean first that which was within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also appear outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So they had the acts right. On the outside, they looked great. Men thought they were righteous. But within, he says they were full of dead men's bones. When Adam and Eve sinned, the heart of mankind became wicked. And for us to enter into God's kingdom, Christ is saying we must experience a change of heart. Sin begins in the heart, and then it finds an outward expression in our actions. So the law, the Old Testament law, dealt with the act. Jesus is dealing with the heart. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So, so sin starts in our minds, in our lusts, and what, what our minds are desiring. And then it brings forth action. 
So we'll see in Jesus' teaching that he's addressing the heart issue again and again. Giving us what we need to deal with the heart rather than the actions. Because if we take care of the heart, the actions will follow. We need to come to Jesus for cleansing for our sins. And we also need to come to him for the work of transformation within us. And that's what Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon of the Mount is about. It's laying out the basic changes that must take place within our hearts. Cleansing by the shed blood of Jesus Christ is of utmost importance for us to experience salvation. But also necessary is the transforming work in our heart, getting rid of those old ways of thinking, getting rid of that root of sin within us. And by the grace of God, replacing those old ways with these principles that Jesus lays out for us. As James says, faith without works is dead. We not only need to believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved, but we must allow him, through the power and grace of God, to perform a transformation within our hearts. The transformation that Jesus outlines in the Sermon on the Mount. But just as faith without works is dead, so are works without faith. To strive to apply the teachings of Jesus only without accepting Him by faith without accepting the sacrifice of Jesus' blood, will not bring salvation. We can't gain salvation through works. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They were saying, well, if we do all these things and we do them perfectly, then we're okay with God and our hearts can still have hate and greed and lust and envy and you name it. But Jesus says that's not right. Inwardly, they're full of dead men's bones. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, not through following these teachings. We need salvation through faith followed by a changed heart that produces the works that Jesus describes. Remember, if you don't remember anything else this morning, remember this, that God's desire for us as his people is that we are set apart to demonstrate what His intent and will is for mankind. He wants us to reflect His will and His ways for mankind in the middle of a dark, sinful world that has been corrupted by Satan. In the Old Testament and in the New, God didn't put forth all of these requirements, so to speak, to 
to create hoops that we have to jump through. He wasn't creating an obstacle course that we have to pass through on our way to get to heaven. No. He was simply outlining what his law requires if we are to live in accordance with his will. That is why it's of utmost importance that we not only receive salvation through the faith and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but that we also live a demonstration to the world around us of a changed life by the power and grace of God. God doesn't put these requirements on us to make life difficult or to simply make us look or act differently. He does it because as we put these things into practice, we demonstrate God's character to the world around us. So God bless you this week as you go forth from here and demonstrate to a dying sinful world that God's commands are good. Remember that what God created, he said, was very good. And when we do things God's way, we're doing things the good way. God bless you.